You're listening to the Art of Parenting podcast. I'm your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. My intention is to share with you simple tips and tricks that will make a huge difference in your life, as well as giving you all the support and encouragement you deserve to enhance your parenting experience. I've created this safe place for us to explore the issues and concerns that matter to you bringing you clarity and solutions with Q&A sessions and inspirational conversations with world-renowned experts in a variety of fields. I've recently created a private community for us to continue these supportive and uplifting conversations. Click the Join the Art of Parenting Community Here button on this page and I will see you there. I'm a firm believer that parenting was never meant to be done alone, and I'm here to debunk the general consensus that it has to be hard. A warm welcome to you, and thanks for tuning in. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Art of Parenting. This is your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel, and today I have Kim Hopkins here with us to talk about really... uh, behavior that might be challenging, what to do about it, what is going on in our public schools, and so forth. So I think we're going to have a lovely conversation. Kim, thank you so much for making the time to be here with us today. Absolutely happy to. Thanks for having me. Yes. So as I always like to start is to ask my guest how they define the art of parenting. It's a good question. Um, Parenting is definitely an art form and takes a bit of finesse and certainly a full emotional bucket um, that helps us to have the patience that we need to truly understand um, what our kids need and the best way to meet those needs. Lots more to say on that, really. Thinking about how we're taught to parent from a lot of different directions these days and how uh, that kind of parenting, we call it a traditional kind of parenting, doesn't necessarily meet the needs of our kids and for some kids makes their behavior worse. Uh, So I welcome the opportunity to talk about another option um, for uh, parenting kids that has this beautiful side effect of uh, increasing your relationship with them and breeding honesty between the relationship, and also teaching them a whole host of skills that they're going to need when they leave your nest. Beautiful. Yes. And and trust, when you say honesty, for me, trust is such an important aspect of of our parenting, not only to trust ourselves, but to trust our children's development. So beautifully said. Thank you. Thank you. And before we get too involved in our conversation, I would love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to do the work that you are doing today. Sure. Um, I'm a clinical social worker and um, I started my career before I became a parent in residential care with youth um, ages primarily between the ages of 12 and 22. And this is back in the early 90s. And I was trained in the traditional way of helping kids um, behavior modification. And we were doing that. And in residential care in the early 90s in the US, you you could try to modify behavior in some very punitive ways, but they were acceptable. But what we were noticing was these punitive interventions we had weren't really getting the job done. If they made a difference, they tended not to make a difference long term. It was just sort of short lived. 
one punitive intervention we had was restraining kids. And we were restraining kids a lot, about 400 times a year across our 12 programs. Um, the other thing we noticed is that kids who did make gains with us, if they went back home or went to a less restrictive setting, they often lost the gains we made. So we were thinking like they were really heavily relying on a lot of adults around them, kind of corralling them and controlling them, as opposed to having internalized skills that they would need to function. Um, so we were wondering about a few of these things, and I just happened to have somebody recommend going to hear Dr. Green speak. I was just going for uh, credits for my license. I had no idea I would find the answers to everything that my organization was struggling with. And I was so grateful. It was truly serendipity. And that started a very long and difficult 180 degree shift from how we were viewing kids and their behavior um, and what we could actually do to help them. It was a very, very big change. And it was absolutely amazing when we viewed kids uh, with more accurate, compassionate lenses, we were able to create an intervention that actually worked and worked long term. And then we had um, much better relationships with them. Instead of being their adversaries, we became their partners. Um, it was a really just amazing shift. And then um, when I wanted to make a change from there, I ended up going to work for Dr. Green. This is about 16, 17 years ago. Um, and I've had the honor and privilege ever since to um, teach his model, train his model when he can't be available um, and work with parents, schools, clinical providers, hospitals, residentials, um, to learn the collaborative and proactive solutions model. Um, and in that time, I became a parent. I have um, a 12-year-old daughter and an almost seven-year-old son who are very different kids. And I always like to say I'm perfect at the model at work. And at home, it's a whole different story. <laughs> I mean, it's so hard at home, right? You've got a lot of other things competing for your energy. So um, yeah. I, I am so glad you say that because I, I know I've, you know, I have felt that myself where here I am a parenting mentor and I think I do a really great job for other parents. And then when it comes to my own parenting, sometimes you're pulling your hair out and you just don't know what's going on. So, so yeah, thank you for, for, for that honesty. Um, I'm really intrigued as to the, the model that you were mentioning of uh, Dr. Green collaborative and proactive solutions. Would you be able kind of in a nutshell, explain to our listeners how that um, is different, maybe for more conventional uh, methods of trying to deal with challenging behavior? Sure. Um, briefly put, uh, many typical ways we're taught to parent have us view kids who are exhibiting concerning behavior in terms of that they would do well if they wanted to. And if you're a helper and you believe that kids do well if they want to do well, then the only way for you to help is to make them want to do well. And I always say I was in the make them want to business for a long time back in residential care where, you know, we could try to make kids want to by doing all kinds of things, you know, including uh, seclusion, restraint, keeping them from seeing their families and, you know, not going on paid activities and not being with the rest of the group and all this other stuff that was really punitive. And um, what what Dr. Green says in his model is that the opposite is actually true. They already want to. They already want to do well. 
kids do well if they can, which is a slight shift in language, but a huge shift in perspective that if you look at a kid and believe, oh my, um, this is not great what's happening, but this kid would do well if she could. So let's figure out what's getting in the way of her doing well. And it turns out that there's a whole host of research, 50 something years of research that backs that idea up that kids who are exhibiting concerning behavior in the face of frustration lack what they need to do well, not lacking motivation. What they're lacking is skills, high level thinking skills that allow them to meet expectations. And so we um, help people figure out um, why our kids exhibiting concerning behavior and when are they exhibiting concerning behavior. In other words, we help figure out what skills the kid might be lacking and more importantly, when is that playing out? You know, when certain expectations are placed on the kid, we call those unsolved problems. Um, this is a, a, as referred to it as an, as an upstream model. Um, loosely based on a fable where there's a community that lives downstream and a community that lives upstream. And the downstream community looks over in the water because they hear people shouting for help. Um, and they go, oh my goodness, people are drowning. We've got to do something, right? So they, they do their best to figure out how to rescue people. Um, they're exhausted and they can't quite save everybody. But what they don't do is get out of the water and dry off and walk upstream and say to the upstream community, how come people who cannot swim keep falling in the water. Mm. They put their intervention upstream, they could prevent the falling in the water. When kids are doing their behavioral signal, they are in the water. And a lot of models teach us to respond to them in the water and to look at, well, what do they look like in the water? And who are they targeting when they're in the water? And how often are they going? And how far downstream did they go? And that's not the important observable information. The important observable information is upstream. When you go upstream, you find problems that they didn't have skills to solve. In other words, expectations, they didn't have the skills to meet. And then we get to work when we figure that out and we work with kids, as the name of the model suggests, collaboratively with them as partners because they have information that if they are able to give it to us, will make us more effective helpers. Um, and we work with them proactively outside of the heat of the moment. Not a lot of good happens when we're trying to help kids when they're drowning. We really want to prevent the drowning from happening. We want to prevent falling in the water in the first place. Right, right. And I, and I love that analogy because it's true that when we try to, you know, quote unquote, fix something, uh, it can be exhausting if we don't know what the root cause is and, and, and go upstream, like you say, to to what is actually going on. And so here, when you're talking about this model, you're working directly with children or are you working also with parents to also give the parents the tools to be able to maybe detect what, what is going on and, and what skills uh, their children need? Yeah, our, our work is with adults and kids, not just kids. Okay, wonderful. And um, offline, we were talking about something that you say is is um, uh, coming along in the kind of in the 
planning for schools and such, and this this conversation about restraint and seclusion. And you you kind of mentioned that also in how you were taught originally how to deal with children and kind of, you know, take take privileges away, things like that, which I know for me is something that that I talk a lot about in the positive discipline uh, model from, from Jane Nelson that you know, those are not uh, beneficial. Like, it, yes, it might solve the the behavior in the heat of the moment, but what does it do long term? And so, I really like how how you know your model is aligning with that. But can you talk a little bit about what this conversation today in 2022 is around uh, the notion of restraining and secluding children who are having challenging behaviors? Um, Definitely. It's a hot topic for us these days. We are delighted that there is a big conversation happening around punitive interventions and are they effective up to and including the big ones, seclusion, restraint, and paddling. Here in the U.S., we still have uh, 19 states that paddle kids. uh, They hit. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh my goodness. I did not realize that. Wow. A lot of people who live in the States don't either, because if you live somewhere that doesn't do it, you think it's foreign. But if you move to a state that allows it, it's actually being used about 200,000 times a year. (sighs) My goodness. And many other countries as a whole have outlawed it. And and we're, we're a little slow on the uptake. So a big part of our work at Lives in the Balance, which is Dr. Ross Green's nonprofit, is not only to give the model away for free, there's lots of free resources on our website, but it's also to advocate on behalf of these kids and their caregivers, being their parents, their educators, their service providers, um, because the system is broken and we don't all have what we need to um, help kids the way we'd like to help them. As, as awful as these punitive interventions are, I don't believe that there's an educator that goes into work thinking, oh, I really hope I get to restrain a kid today. It's awful for the adults too. And yet they're not taught what to do differently. What we're taught is if a kid is not meeting an expectation, we're taught to push the kid to meet the expectation. And then when the pushing results in them moving further downstream and exhibiting bigger, unsafe, unlucky behavior, then we're going to start focusing on that and dealing with that, right? And then, um, you know, we we do things to sort of cajole and convince them to try to meet our expectation, and that just makes things worse as well. And now we're in de-escalation mode. So now the kid's actively drowning, and we're trying to throw a life raft and saying, you know, grab onto this <laughs> when rational thought is diminished, right? It's just, it's... um. It's a cycle that's really clear and obvious, and it can be completely avoided if we're doing proactive work with kids um, and figuring out how to help them solve problems before they start. Um, so it's a big topic for us. We're happy for the shift. And um, and so and so when you say it's a big topic and you're happy for the shift, what what exactly is is going on? Like, is this a conversation that is being had at the uh, kind of federal um, level, or this is uh, different states are starting to talk about this? What what is exactly is going on? Yeah, both really. We're seeing pieces of legislation being introduced, certainly at the state level, and then some bits in the federal level. And we are um, 
joining with others to try to back these pieces of legislation to try to get them through. We just had our Children's Mental Health Conference a few weeks ago. It was a free event that you can access the recordings on our website if anybody would like to. But we had um, many politicians and influential folks in that world that make the rules, right, um, talking about these bills and what they're aimed to do and how we can work to get them passed. Um, and, you know, at some of the some states are actually saying things like, um, you can no longer seclude kids, you can no longer restrain kids in public school. And yet what, what's happening is we're being contacted because they're not telling them what to do differently. They're just saying you can't do it. And so we're being contacted and getting very, very busy because we are um, a research-based, evidence-based viable alternative to punitive interventions. So, um, so it's an exciting time, a uh, long time coming, no doubt. Um, yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's interesting what you say that, you know, you're being contacted as to, okay, so what do we do, right? Because, and I think, you know, probably some of our listeners are in the same uh, thought in that, you know, here we're saying no more, you know, punitive timeout, no more seclusion and all this, but that's how, I mean, most of us were raised. I, I, still have vivid memories of, you know, go to your room. And my mother's words were, you know, you're in the doghouse. And I knew that that was like, uh oh, I've been, you know, I've done something wrong. But you know, how, what, what are the alternatives? So you're, you know, you're saying no restraint, no seclusion. But what do what do parents or educators, you know, what are the tools that they have instead? The first, first and foremost is to figure out for each kid that we're worried about, what skills are they potentially lacking? And again, more importantly, when does that play out? What, you know, we can make kids predictable to us by really thinking through, and we have um, a, a tool that helps people do this, but really thinking through the parts of their day that tend not to go well. You know, if, if we're going to ask them to end TV use at 5 p.m., in order to join us for dinner. And we know that that typically, if not all the time, doesn't go well. That's an unsolved problem or an unmet expectation. Difficulty ending TV at 5 p.m. to join the family for dinner. Um, if we know that whenever it's Tuesday night and they're supposed to take the trash out, that that doesn't go well, then difficulty taking the trash out on Tuesday night is an unsolved problem we're gonna write down. So we use our assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems to make kids predictable to us so we can get proactive, um, to figure out the whole host of unsolved problems that they're running into. I mean, some kids um, ha you know, hit lots of bumps during the course of a day or a week and they have you know, 40, 50 unsolved problems and we can't solve them all at once. So it's important to get a thorough list together so we can start to figure out, well, what are our priorities and what are we gonna do with the rest? Um, because if we just keep pushing for kids to do things they're not capable of doing, they're going to keep doing their behavior signals and we're gonna keep pulling our hair out trying to manage it. And so um, we very much believe in making a plan of action using that alphabet as, as the starting point. And then once we have that list, which by the way, also using that ALSEP, that assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, it helps adults to keep their kids do well if they can, lenses on straight. And it helps us focus on things we can actually get going better, um, which is neat. It's a very like tangible on the ground tool. And so 
Once we have that figured out, then we get busy. We figure out what our priorities are and we get to work one at a time. Maybe when we're good at the model, we can do two or three at a time, although those are separate conversations. And we start solving problems using Dr. Green's three-step process. Um, We call it a plan B conversations, which is synonymous with a collaborative and proactive solutions conversation. It's three steps with some key ingredients where we work together, again, proactively um, with our partner, the kid, no matter their age or cognitive ability or language ability to work on these problems and solve them together. And um, fantastic stuff happens then when we're working nice and proactively that way we can prevent all this other stuff from happening. We, we like to say we like to get adults out of the heat of the moment because nothing good happens in the heat of the moment. So the more proactive work you do to solve problems, the less heat of the moment you're going to find yourself in. Right, right. And and so true about, you know, trying to solve anything in in the heat of the moment. Um, is is impossible <laughs> in the sense that we're 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 kind of out of sort. Our child is out of sort, and and we get nowhere fast. Um, and I love the the what I'm hearing and what you're describing. It's really solution based, right? It's really about having a collaboration with our child to find solutions together because it's practically impossible for us to have the solutions by ourselves. Uh, we need to bring in the child into the process. Right, especially because we can observe their behavior signal, but that doesn't tell us anything about why they're having difficulty meeting the expectation in the first place. And so if we can get that information from them, um, and it doesn't have to be through words, we can adjust the model depending on who our kid is, right? But if we can get them to give us any feedback on what's kind of happening in their brains in the midst of the unsolved problem, then we're in a much stronger position to kind of co-create with them a solution that meets their concern and ours. Um, typically, the way we're taught to help kids is we adults, we just unilaterally solve the problem. You know, we're good problem solvers and we're here to help. So we just sort of decide how it's going to go. But there's um, a lot of downsides to that. When we do that, we are not partnering with kids and the relationship actually can take a hit. Um, we're not getting any information about what's making it hard for them to solve the problem in the first place. Um, we're not teaching them any skills. We're just doing it, right? Doing it for them. And so it's at, you know, kind of kind of at a cost. Whereas if we collaborate with them proactively, the relationship strengthens, a whole bunch of skills teaching happens without us even thinking about it, just in those three steps of the CPS model. And we don't risk making anything worse, uh, which is really nice. Kim, I would love if you could uh, help us understand the uh, three-step process that you mentioned earlier. Sure. The collaborative and proactive solutions model has three steps, and the order of the steps is critical. Although the three steps happening in one sit-down, not needed whatsoever, and usually not even possible, um, depending on what kids can tolerate. And so the first step is called the empathy step. And Dr. Green would say that if it wouldn't cause chaos, he would change the name of the step to the information gathering and understanding step, because that is actually the most important ingredient of this step. We're really trying to work hard in the first step to understand from kids what is getting in the way of their ability of meeting the expectation. Why is this problem unsolved? Um, And This is the hardest step of the three because um, it's going to take a little effort 
to get that critical information to where we kind of go, oh, okay, all right, now I see how this happens, or now I understand how this plays out, and I'm no longer guessing um, what's at work here. And so to begin the first step, we like to use the words, and, and again, this is proactive, I've noticed that. And then you're going to insert one of your well-worded unsolved problems that you're getting from your assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems or the ALSIP. And well-worded means there's no behavior, there's no theory, they're nice and split and specific because we've learned some things about what works to try to get the conversation started, at least to our best ability. And then you're going to end with some sort of initial inquiry. So something like, I've noticed that it's been difficult for you to uh, take the trash out on Tuesday nights. What's up? I've noticed it's been difficult for you to start on your math fractions homework. What's up? I've noticed it's been difficult for you to get along with your brother when you guys are playing uh, Fortnite. What's up? I don't even know what Fortnite is, but I'm making things up. Um, <laughs> I don't even know whether that's an acceptable game or not. I have no idea. But anyway, so that's the conversation starter. Now, interesting things can happen. You might have a talker who talks, right? Which is great. That's If, if you have a kid that has language, we would love for them to tell us their perspective if they can. They are probably not going to say, well, thank you for asking. Here's what's happening. I'm having difficulty reading social cues. And then, right, that's not going to be what they say. If they say anything, it's going to be kind of surface, like I don't like it, or it's hard, something like that. It is now time to do what we call drill for information, which is a neutral, non-judgmental ways of asking questions to try to get at the crux of this information so that we're going, okay, now I get it. We have a whole cheat sheet on the different ways we like to ask questions um, to try to help elicit that information. My favorite is asking what kids are thinking in the midst of an unsolved problem. So I might say, when Tuesday rolls around and you realize it's trash night, what do you start thinking? Or what does your brain start telling you? Or for younger kids, I might say, draw me what your brain is telling you. There's no guarantees with these questions, of course, that kids will provide answers. They're just different ways to try to get at the information. Um, again, all neutral and non-judgmental. So this step um, takes a bit, uh, even when you have a talker. When you have a kid who doesn't talk, you know, you're going to have to shift your role in the partnership a little bit. Um, first, you want to make them as comfortable as possible um, by assuring them that they're not risking anything by talking. There's no consequence that's going to come their way if we talk about this, right? But they might not have the words. Even very bright verbal kids don't always have the words to tell you what's happening in the midst of the unsolved problem. So we as the adult partners would take some guesses um, and they can give us feedback like, hmm, I wonder if it's difficult for you to take the trash out on Tuesday nights because you don't like the smell of it. And then I would wait for feedback and see um, what my partner told me, right? And then I would take lots of different guesses about what I could imagine might get in the way of meeting this expectation, right? We also have resources on the website, other ideas for when kids don't talk and other ideas for when kids get defensive and things like that. Because um, a lot, you know, a lot of interesting things can happen after your initial inquiry of saying what's up. But the goal, again, is to get information so that we go, okay, now I see how this plays out. Once we get the kids' full concern on the table and we do a summary to make sure they know we're listening and just really trying to understand, you know, we say everything back to them that they told us, you know, then we ask if there's anything else and they say, no, you've got it. 
Then we can move on to the second step, which by contrast is very short. The second step is the define adult concern step. This is going to be where the adult says what their worry is about the unsolved problem being unsolved. Um, this is a very quick step. It's maybe a sentence or two because adult worries usually fall into one of four categories. We're usually worried about health, safety, learning, or fairness as it relates to the kid, as it relates to people around the kid. So some combination of those. Um, so we would just say one sentence um, that would communicate not what the expectation is, because the kid already knows the expectation. We're now communicating why is it important to us? So what? So what if this isn't happening? Well, it's important to us, right? So we might say something like, my concern is that um, if the trash stays around, we could attract rodents and bugs. So that would be a health-related um, concern, right? Or I might have a different concern. Different parents have different concerns, right? But one sentence that explains our perspective or concern on the unsolved problem. And then it's time for the third and final step, the invitation step, where we're going to invite our partners to think through a solution that is both realistic, meaning we think we can do it, and mutually satisfactory, meaning it meets both sets of concerns, not just the kid's concern and not just the parent's concern, both sets. So the third step starts with, I wonder if there's a way. And then we're going to do a lot of repetition here because without us even thinking about it, there's a lot of skills training going on here. I wonder if there's a way generically that we can do something about what you said and also do something about what I said, but we're gonna specify it. I wonder if there's a way we can do something about the fact that the trash smells and it really bothers you in such a way that the trash is not piling up so that we're attracting bugs and rodents. And then we end with, do you have any ideas? And the kid gets first crack at it. Um, very interesting what can happen after that. Sometimes kids have great ideas that are both realistic and mutually satisfactory, and we choose to pick one and try it out, and we agree to come back and see how it's working. And if it's not working, the message is we will figure out what's not working, and we will tweak the solution and come up with something else. Sometimes kids stare at you blankly because they don't have the skill to consider multiple solutions to a problem or brainstorm which is on the ALSEP as a research-based skill that these kids often lack, in which case you're the partner and you can float some ideas for how you might solve it and see, uh, get some feedback from your partner on what they're willing to try. Sometimes kids say ideas that only meet their concern. So you would say, well, that meets your concern. But the thing about that is it doesn't meet my concern. So let's keep thinking. And believe it or not, sometimes kids say ideas that meet your concern, but not theirs, in which case we know it's not going to work. So we're going to say, well, thing about that is it's an idea, but it only meets my concern. It does nothing about the smell for you. Let's keep thinking. Um, so we end the third step when we have an idea that we feel like has a 60 to 70 percent shot of working. We agree to try it and we come back and follow up. And if it's not working, we learn from it and tweak it and keep going. Wow. It's, it's, it's a gorgeous process, but I am, uh, I think hearing my listeners going, that takes a lot of time. Like that takes a lot of energy and time. What, what do I do in the heat of the moment when there is 
behavior that needs, you know, uh, redirection or needs to change or might be uh, unsafe in a way, right? Because what what you described is is beautiful, but for me, it's really a sit down. It's a, it's a brainstorm, and, and I know you said we don't do it at all in one sitting. So I'm I'm assuming that they this might take several days or or different moments in the day. But what about kind of when you're wanting to? really nip something in the bud while it's happening? What what do you suggest there? Well, they would not be alone if they're worried about time. Everybody worries about time at the beginning. And so until problems start getting solved, and then they're saving themselves time because it's not being robbed by behavior. And so, you know, I can certainly talk about the application of the model in the heat of the moment, but I always want to make the pitch that we don't want to find ourselves there having a nice thorough ALSEP done and using a combination of plan B, CPS, to solve problems, but then you need to do something about the ones you're not working on because we can't work on them all at once. We call that plan C. There's ways of setting aside expectations temporarily to make room for the ones you're going to work on. And the two in combination tend to stabilize things so that you don't find yourself in the heat of the moment. So I want to make that pitch. If you are in the heat of the moment, um, you always have three options for handling it. We again call them plans, A, B, and C. Plan A is where you're going to push your agenda and do the traditional discipline thing, and it's likely going to make it worse and the relationship will take a hit. So usually plan A is only reserved for imminent risk of danger, that if you don't intervene, someone will get hurt. And if we intervene with plan A, The relationship still takes a hit. We've taught no skills. It's only that very temporary solution because we had to restore safety. So we're going to need to go back with another plan later if we don't want it to happen again. You've also got emergency plan C in your pocket. Plan C is when you set the the problem aside temporarily. And so you see that your child's not meeting expectation and you might not say anything about it if this was emergency C. However, we like proactive C where we're being very clear and decisive about the expectations we're not going to pursue to keep things calm and make room for the ones we are pursuing and working on. And then you have emergency B. And so emergency B, the same three steps, although again, heat of the moment, you can't, there are no guarantees here, right? But if a kid was in front of me having a meltdown, I would say, you seem very upset about what we're serving for dinner tonight. Fill me in. So instead of I've noticed that, I like to start with you seem because it's happening in front of me and I'm I'm asking for meaning, right? And I, I might want to reassure, nobody's upset here. You're not in trouble. I'm not mad. Like I'm not doing plan A because that's what kids are maybe expecting from us, which actually jacks them up even further, right? I'm just trying to understand what's not working for you about this. Now, sometimes you get information, count yourself lucky, (laughs) and then you can kind of work with it to say, well, here's where I'm coming from. How do we essentially, how do we patch this up at this time? We're not doing any skills training right now because it's still emergency, right? But we can restore to baseline, no doubt. And it's a much better option than plan A, which will make things worse first, right? Sometimes kids don't say anything because they're too, you know, in the water, rational thought is diminished. And yet um, that initial step of asking a question and trying to empathize and trying to tell them like not to worry, no one's upset, that can in and of itself be enough to return them to baseline. 
But, you know, we've done a lot of podcasts on the topic too, because everybody's like, what do we do in the heat of the moment? It's mayhem. You've got to prevent the heat of the moment. That's what we need to do. Because once it hits, all we can do is just keep everybody safe. That's all we can do. Right, right. And it goes back to that, that analogy of the upstream, right? It's really your, your, you're setting a foundation very early on. Uh, but that takes that takes training on the part of the parents to to be able to let go of probably how they were parented, right? It's it's always this vicious circle for me of we we kind of repeat what was done to us, even though we know we can do different and so on and so forth. Yeah. You know, if I think about my own upbringing, loved my parents dearly, um, and they were plan A parents because that's what they knew. And, and I was a, I was a, you know, a kid who had many skills and did school well and didn't have major behavior. However, what they missed in their plan A parenting was that I had difficulty when the plan would change. So my behavior would just be to cry and sulk, right? But they read that as, oh, you know, she just wants her own way, which of course everybody wants their own way. That's actually not news, but what they weren't seeing was she doesn't have the flexibility, adaptability, and frustration tolerance skills to handle a change in plan. So then when I became an adult, I still had that skill deficit. Now I'm at work and I'm in my relationship. And that doesn't go very well <laughs> when you can't handle a change in plan, right? And so thankfully, when I found the model, I was able to um, work on a strategy that helps me adjust to a change in plan even to today. So I'm not having behavior over it. So did I turn out okay? Yes, I did. And yet I did have this bit that if they had caught that when I was younger, I would not have suffered so much as an adult, even though I was not a kid with like, super unlucky behavioral signals, you know, and even though I did school just fine. Right. Um, so anyway, that would be my pitch on thinking through like, just because plan a seems to work for some of our kids. Um, it still is the relationships taking a hit because plan a does not breed honesty. Um, kids get taught to go underground with what they're doing. That's not okay. Which as they get older is not really, uh, what we want to be having happen. So, right. Right. And they still could have skill deficits that we could be partnering with them and teaching them. Right. And when you when you talk about the skill deficit, because I, I like that term, what what uh, skills like come to mind if you could name a few that would we would be looking out for? Oh, sure. And they're all listed on our assessment um, if you uh, check out our website. But what the research tells us is that we're thinking about things like reading social cues entering groups, tolerating frustration, um, considering multiple solutions to a problem, shifting mindset or transitioning, focusing, persisting on challenging or tedious tasks. There's kind of a whole host of them. Um, and we on our most recent version of our ALSIP have boiled them down to the ones that are most commonly found in these kids. It's not an exhaustive list um, because it would be too much information, but it gets the job done. <laughs> So basic social skills, language skills, frustration tolerance, um, uh, problem solving, those kinds of skills is what the research tells us these kids lack. Right. And do you do you think that this is something that is getting worse in our children? I mean, is have you seen a trend in, in the 
because you said you've been with the Institute for 16 years, like, have you seen changes in that in, in one direction or another? I wouldn't say in that time, but I know many people do talk about, you know, I've been a teacher for 40 years and I'm seeing the kids are different today. Like I definitely have heard that. Why that is, I don't even think we could scratch the surface because everything from environmental stuff and chemicals that we're breathing in to, you know, societal stuff. I mean, there's all kinds of potential things that could go into that. The good news for us is that um, we kind of, stay out of that debate because the intervention's the same no matter the cause and nobody can agree on the cause. Okay. Okay. So that that makes sense. Yeah, cuz it's true like from when you and I were children and you know children today they have a completely different environment, a completely different world. I mean the the screens, the phones, you know, all of that is is very very different. Fascinating. Th- this has been no this has been great. I've I've taken lots of notes. Um and I, I would love if you could maybe just share, you know, as you've been working with uh, families and educators, is there like one big misconception that we as adults might have vis-a-vis children? Yes, we are trained to believe that kids lack motivation. And the only way to change the behavior is to reward the things we like and punish the things we don't like. And we are completely missing the boat and alienating kids. <laughs> they already want to do well. So they're not lacking motivation. Sometimes it's buried because they've been misunderstood for so long. We like to say, picture a train. Um, motivation's on that train, but it is not the engine. It is the caboose. And it might be hidden down behind a hill. But once we look at the engine, turns out the engine is skills. And we tune that up and we skill that kid up. Motivation comes right along. It was always there. Um, just gets buried deep. The older kids get, the more misunderstood they've been. Um, they just get defensive and decide they don't care because they don't know how to do it differently. And they're tired of being told they don't do it right. Right, right. So yeah, wonderful. They do want to do well. And and it's so true. Like I, I see it in in all children. Like they 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 want to please us. They want to do well for themselves, for for others. It's um, that's fascinating that that would be a misconception that children lack motivation or, you know, or or being defiant is the one that I get, you know, that they're doing it on purpose. And and for me, it's like a young child is not <laughs> being defiant on purpose. It's just, <laughs> this is their process. Even, even the big ones, it's not, they didn't wake up thinking at 1022 this morning, I am going to kill off my mother. That is not, and they know they shouldn't. It's they run into a problem. They didn't have the skills to solve. They land in the water, and that's what it looks like. <laughs> right, right. Fascinating, fascinating. And I'm just, and I'm just so excited about you know the work that you're doing, and so many others to try to better understand our children because, you know, like you said, it's just the the foundation for the rest of our life. If you had been given that skill early on, you wouldn't have you know struggled as an adult. So it's it really is. It's time well spent, basically, is what I'm trying to say. I couldn't agree more. And thank you for the work you're doing as well. Yeah. Yes. So if um, we're, uh, as we wrap up, I would uh, love to ask a more personal question, if I may. Sure. So you mentioned you had uh, two children. I, I did get that your son is seven. Your daughter is how old? Twelve. 
12. So if you were to go back uh, 13 years ago when you were expecting your first child, mm-hmm. what uh, wise words would you tell yourself knowing all that you know today? Oh, my goodness. I would say relaxed. <laughs> It's just a phase, you'll move through it, and you don't have to have all the answers. But oh my goodness, relax, relax, it's going to be okay. Beautiful. Thank you. And I hope all all the listeners who are in the in the midst of it, please relax, because that is so true. Thank you, Kim, for that. Um, Any um, parting words that you would like to leave our listeners with today? Just that, you know, Dr. Green really takes to heart giving away the whole model for free. So check out the livesinthebalance.org website. There's a whole section just for parents under our solution. It's all of our free stuff, including the whole model in video forms. Um, And they're chunked out. So, you know, you can watch seven minutes here and five minutes there whenever you have time. Um, I know I said a lot of information today, but there's all kinds of resources on there that you don't need to pay a dime for um, to learn this model. So um, check it out. And also our advocacy section, if you're as blown out of the water as we are about the the, um, seclusion, restraint and paddling that's still happening in this world, um, join our efforts to end these practices. Wonderful. Well, thank you for that, Kim. And I will have all of the links in our show notes. So again, thank you for your time and sharing your wisdom with us today. Really appreciate you having me. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Art of Parenting. And if you did, please make sure to share it with your loved ones. And do come share your takeaways in our private Facebook community. I'd also be grateful for a review on iTunes so it can get heard by many more. And remember, if you've got a question, let me know. I'm here for you. Till next time.